Wow, what a great weekend it, it was. And wow, what a good synopsis. You guys are amazing. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, George was very humble to say it doesn't, I, you know, we don't have to say it's the best conference, but uh, there's a little part of me that wants to be the best. Just to, uh, And there, you should want to be the best, right? The best you that you can be. That's all you can be. And then celebrate other people at their best as well. Because I don't want to be the best someone else. I want to be the best Jesus that he can be through me. So I like the word best. I'm not going to throw the word best out. <laughs> it's not a comparative word. It's a, it's a word that challenges me to be more of who he is in, inside of me. Let more Christ come out of me. So I like that. Um, so what a great weekend. I wish I had a little bit more time to visit with you over that uh, topic. We do have a short time this morning, uh, and, and we have a second service, I know. And tonight, I really feel there's some things uh, I want to share with you uh, as a church. Let me just say, first of all, thank you for having me back. I, I've come back. Um, for seven, is it really seven years? Is that how long? Yeah. It's very interesting because I'm sitting here thinking, why do I keep coming back? I mean, South Africa is beautiful, uh, and, and these guys are so gracious. They take us to the, bu- the, the bush when we come, and, uh, and my wife loves to come, and my wife doesn't come with me everywhere, so that's another reason I like to come because I know I can get her to come with me. Uh, but, but honestly, um, I, we probably turned on, I'd have to talk to my assistant how many the total is, but it's a, at least 40 to 50 invitations a year that we have to turn out because we can't take everything. So why do we keep coming back to places like Harvest when there are, honestly, there are bigger churches, there just are, right? There are closer churches that I don't have to travel as far. I find myself being drawn to go back to places that aren't the same when I come back the next time. I think that's why I keep coming back, because you guys keep changing, you guys keep growing, and it makes me feel like, well, maybe there's something that part of the deposit that we bring that you do something with, and that's the places I want to go back to, Uh, and that's the kind of places I want to draw from, places that can help me put a deposit in me, and so the people that I'm drawn to are the people that I'm different when I get around them. And so I guess the churches I'm drawn to are churches that, that are different, if I, the next time I come back, because perhaps they're, they're growing, and maybe it's not just from what I deposit, but hopefully there's something that we've deposited that, that encourages you. So I'm encouraged that you guys are growing. And as I believe the unique gift of the prophetic brings a deposit, and the Bible says that we don't come to fullness, because the, the end game is not just to have a church that makes itself known to principalities and powers. The end game is not just to have a church that has apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. The end game is not just to have a church that has the, the, the minister or the, the members doing ministry, that everybody does the work of their ministry. The end game is not just that we do miracles, signs, and wonders. The end game is this, that we come to the fullness of the stature of the measure of Christ. That's the end game for the church, that we look like Jesus. And so we need to have leaders that help us to bring a deposit, I think, and prophetic ministry, apostolic prophetic ministry helps to bring us to a place. It demonstrates to us a measure of who Jesus is, and it causes us to have an invitation to become like that. And so I'm drawn to places that look different when I come back the next time. And so I like that. Thank you for having me back, and thank you for looking more like Jesus than last year. It's really fun to see that, all right? And, and if you want to grow a little bit more in the prophetic, the resources we have back there will help you. I have an entire prophetic library that's 16 hours of teaching 
all together in one place that'll help you to grow. Uh, but most importantly, I want to tell you about my wife today because she's not here in this first service. But uh, my wife is my one of my heroes. She's 100% my favorite person on the face of the earth. I love I don't love just being married to her. I love hanging out with her. Which sometimes those aren't those are mutually exclusive ideas. <laughs> all right. So uh, it's good to like being with the person you're married with because you're with them, right? No, I love hanging out with her, and uh, she just loves, she just creates an atmosphere of the presence of God everywhere she goes. And so the, the couple resources that we do together, is, uh, these are most two re- most requested resources that we do together. It's One's called Healing Experience, one is called Experience Peace. And they're different aspects of who God is, but these are all the healing miracles of Jesus set to spontaneous songs and prayers for healing, prophetic healing music. And, and we have testimonies, hundreds of testimonies of people being healed in their body because of this. This, this project we did because we knew that people needed peace in their mind, particularly in the atmosphere of the world right now. Jesus came to bring peace on earth and goodwill to men. Seems like we have the opposite these days. Um, and that's what the angels were announcing. They were announcing through the media, through the airwaves, Good news of great joy to all people. There'll be peace on earth, goodwill to men. And it seems like through the airways, all we have now is bad news and division and strife. And so we thought we cre- we create something that would um, help to bring people to a place of peace. But the Bible says peace is not just an absence of anxiety. It's, it's the, actually the presence of the kingdom of God. Of his government and his peace, there'll be no end. The God of peace crushes Satan under your feet. So peace isn't passivity. It's actually power, the powerful presence of God that get, get, gives us a sense of God's kingdom. And um, one of the things, what we did was we took, we took the scriptures and we began to make declarations and, and songs uh, about peace over our lives in different areas. God gives us peace with our past, peace with our present, peace with our future. The blood of Jesus has made peace between heaven and earth, the Bible says, between God and man. man. God's not mad at earth anymore. He's not looking to punish man of his sin. And um, what we found is testimonies that have come back because of this resource is that people are experiencing peace in relationships. And sort of happened accidentally. The engineer working on this uh, took it home, played in his house, and he and his wife were really struggling in their marriage. Actually, were physically separated at the time. And he said God did something in his heart through this, the scriptures that they ended up reconciling. That was a cool testimony for us to get before we even released the CD. We thought, oh, that's a nice testimony. We've had a couple dozen testimonies over the last year of relationships being restored. Siblings that have been separated for over 30 years, finding each other and being restored in relationship. Mothers and sons being restored, fathers and children being restored. So there's something on this to bring peace and relationships. It's very, very cool. So that's just a couple of the things that are back there. I just want to let you know the variety of things. Sometimes people go back there and they say, what's that? And the person at the table may say, it's a really cool green CD with a little drop of water on it. That's what that little green CD with a drop of water uh, means. All right. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Exodus uh, chapter 33. I'm going to, there's, there's some things on my heart for harvest that I want to, sh- uh, I think I'm going to wait and share them tonight. So if I share them in the morning service, then I have to say it again prophetically. I kind of feel like I have to say the same thing prophetically uh, in the second service. So I'm really going to unpack a few things prophetically tonight um, for a corporate word that's because I think God's going to add to it. So 
What I do want to say is, here's what I feel in general, and I can say this in the second service. Let me, see a, let me show you a pattern that I see what God, how God's grown you, okay? I believe that God took you from just being a crowd um, to being a community, which, which means you, a church can just be a crowd, and, and I know there was transfer of leadership and transfer of, of you know, circumstances that went on naturally because of what happened in this church. And so at first, uh, you come into a church, you just inherit a crowd. It's, a, it's, not, yet, it's not yet part of your, you're not your, it's not your peeps yet, right? And so God gives you a grace to become a community. And, and it's, it's a different grace to become a community than a crowd. So you can gather a bunch of people, but that doesn't create community. And community takes a certain skill. It takes a certain grace. It takes a certain anointing uh, to begin to build community. But I believe God is, you're not, and, and in fact, what you're not is you're not moving away from being a crowd because you're still drawing people into community. And sometimes people are just part of the crowd before they're part of your community. And that's okay because they, they may need to check it out. They may, not, they may be from another church environment or an unchurched environment. And you need to, to embrace them in love so they can become part of community. But uh, there's something that we move beyond when we go beyond just being a crowd and being community is that out of community, God creates culture. And I believe that's what God is moving the church into now is a discussion about not just how are we going to be a church, but who are we as a church? And that's super important because if you don't know who you are, you'll end up trying to be something that you think everybody else wants you to be. And this is part of the discussion, and I'm going to unpack a few of those things hopefully tonight um, with more detail, which are where I feel the Lord is telling me some things that might be encouraging to you. But... We're going to look at Moses in verse number 12 of Exodus 33, and, to, and tonight I'm actually going to move on from this as well. And it's, this is going to be an extension of the conference, and I know that some of you weren't at this conference, and I know some of it will be unpacked, and there'll be people here tonight that weren't part of the conference, but this will actually, I think, bring some things together for us because Moses really was a Renaissance man. And one of the ideas of Renaissance is actually a person that is able to live beyond their time or before their time. They, they'd be able to move people into a new time. And that's in the natural, the Renaissance during the, the European Renaissance. It was brought people into a, a, a different way of thinking. And so Moses really was that guy. And sometimes the people that God uses to make those kind of transitions and changes, Moses, I think, is a key one. He, you see in this moment is actually a Renaissance moment for Moses. It's a time of change, of transition, of actually transformation of culture that takes place in this. I won't go into the detail. I'll probably share it more tonight. But out of this passage right here that we have, we have a complete shift of things in the world that we enjoy right now we never had before. There's, there's governmental ideas that come out of this encounter. There's, uh, there's uh, commerce ideas that come out of this encounter. There's international relations. There's military uh, wisdom that comes out of this. There's fashion design. There's architecture. There's a ton of things that are unpacked out of this encounter. So this is really a renaissance moment. And the reason why I believe it's important, too, is because I believe Moses is one of the most impactful transformational leaders in the Old Covenant. And I'd argue he's the most impactful uh, for a couple reasons. One is, is because he comes at a moment in history that's so pivotal that if someone doesn't do something at that moment, God's literally going to have to start over again, go back to like an Abraham figure and start over again. And so he, he kind of 
is able to rescue or build off a foundation that was broken. And that's very important because sometimes what happens is we think things are so broken that you just have to burn it down and start all over again. But with the right person, with the right faith, at the right position, at the right moment, he don't, God doesn't have to go back and burn everything down and start over again. He can actually build, as we heard this weekend, on ancient, founda- on ancient ruins. He can build something new. And I do believe that this is powerful about Moses. The second reason I believe Moses is probably, for me, the most important leader in the Old Covenant is because he fulfilled three functions that Jesus fulfilled. He didn't fulfill the function that Jesus was the Son of God, that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus was the Lamb uh, that died for us in his blood. It wasn't that, but Jesus had three earthly functions, and those were his heavenly functions. Messiah, Son of God, and the Lamb that was slain were his heavenly functions, but his earthly functions were prophet, priest, and king. Jesus was a prophet because he spoke to the people for God, heard directly from God and spoke to the people. He was a priest because he could go into the most holy place and he could bring, sprinkle the blood. He did sprinkle the blood and he could, he could then bring the sacrifice and represent the people to God, which are different functions, representing God to the people as the prophet, representing God to the people or the people to God is the priest. And then he was the king. And that was actually representing the government of God in the community. So, and, and Moses wasn't a king in, in the, in the uh, literal sense, but he was the most, uh, he was the pre-kingly uh, illustration in Israel. They didn't have a king. So he, he was a government official. He was a prophet. He was a priest. And Jesus did all of those things. No one else in the Old Covenant did that. They had kings, uh, they had prophets, and they had priests, but they weren't supposed to mix. One king tried to be a priest and got killed. That was um, Uzziah. He went to the altar and tried to, be, to make a sacrifice, and he ended up getting leprosy because of it. So it was bad news if you mixed those three things. That's why I believe Moses is such a transformational figure. The second thing that we say about Moses is a lot of people think of Moses because of the great stories, his transformational time of being rescued out of the, out of the basket, and, and that was a special moment in his life. I actually think this is the most important moment. Some people would say, no, it's the burning bush because he heard from God. His rod became a miraculous thing. But I believe this is a, a transformational moment, the most important moment, in the most important person in the Old Testament in my mind because of what happens out of this encounter. The cool thing about this is that Moses wouldn't be the guy you would be most likely to pick to be this kind of a leader, the guy who's maybe the most transformational leader under the old covenant, and maybe this being his most transformational moment, you wouldn't pick him to be that because he was the guy that was actually born into a generation that was marked for destruction. He was born into a, a, a time where everybody of his age that was a boy was marked for destruction. The males were marked for destruction. And we heard so eloquently this weekend about how women have gone through challenges in our culture and still do. But in this culture, Moses was a man who was oppressed. He was a man who was marked for destruction. He was a man who was marked for annihilation. And God chooses people that are marked for destruction, and he marks them for distinction in their generation. Now, what I want to say to you is you have a choice to either become the victim who's marked for destruction or to become the overcomer who's marked for distinction. And Moses says, I'm an overcomer. Moses' mother said, no way. He's marked for distinction. She knew in her heart from the time she was born, this boy is special. This boy, God has a purpose on his life. And so because of that, God takes a, a, 
a thing, a man, a person, a generation marked for destruction. It marks them for distinction to change their generation. And can I tell you, every single person here has a part of their life that the enemy has tried to mark for destruction. Maybe you grew up with a father who was angry and you developed that anger issue. The enemy marked you for destruction, but God's marked you for distinction. And when you come under the perfect love of God that's not easily angered and you realize you're like your father, not like your father, then you have the ability to step into a place where you go into transformational thinking, where you realize the places that the enemy has used for evil in my life, God has used, can use them for good. And the areas that God, that, that the enemy wants to mark me for destruction, God marks me for distinction. I think it's so important to understand that idea because if we're going to see transformation take place around us, we've got to see that there's a God who transforms us from the inside out. And Moses is in a transformational moment. The reason is, is because he's actually had success as a leader up to this point. And sometimes your moment of crisis doesn't come at your moment of failure. It comes at your moment of success. Because let's just say, I, everybody here has had moments where they've had nothing. And everybody's had moments where you've had a lot, whether it just be a lot of food or <laughs> a lot of people in your life. Maybe you haven't had a lot of money, but I can just tell you something. It's much easier to budget your money when you have no money than when you have some money, <laughs> right? It's easy to make a budget. <laughs> It's easy to go on a diet when you don't have any food. You hear what I'm saying? Sometimes your faith is tested the most when you actually have the favor of God. It's easy to manage a lack of favor. It's hard to manage an abundance of favor. It's easy to manage a lack of wealth. It's hard to live with a, with a lack of wealth, but it's easy to manage it because you don't have to budget. It's hard to live with an abundance of wealth. And Moses' problem here isn't that he's failed. His, his issue here is that you know, he succeeded, and he succeeded so well, he got a million people to follow him into the wilderness. <laughs> you think it's tough to manage a million dollars. It's tough to manage a million Jewish people in the wilderness, okay? <laughs> you think it's tough to lead a church of 250. Get ready for a church of 500, right? So there's a new level of leadership that has to come and stewardship in our life and transformation that comes in our life whenever we come to a new place of fruitfulness or success that God brings us into. And so Moses is one of these, in one of these places because not only has he been successful, but he now, he needs new resources to get to the new place. So God told him, you're going to come out of the wilderness, and I'm going to take you to a land flowing with milk and honey. He told him, I'm going to give you houses you, you never built. I'm going to give you fields you never planted. So he told him where he was going to take him, and then he, and then he said, you're going to get these people that have been 430 years or so in slavery, and you're going to get them out of, the, the, out of Egypt, and you're going to go through the Red Sea. And then I'm going to take you into the promised land, flowing with milk and honey. By the way, I have no idea why it's important for them that to be flowing with milk and honey, but maybe there was rooibos tea <laughs> in the land. And I think milk and honey is good in rooibos tea. Well, at least honey is. I, I can't drink milk in mine. I'm dairy-free, but whatever. And so almond milk. Maybe it was almond milk. And so 
But God doesn't, here's where Moses is. He's had the success of getting them out of slavery and he's got the vision to get them in the promised land. But now he's got a million people in the desert without resources, without food, and they're not happy with him. And they're starting to question him. They're starting to question who he is. They're starting to question his methods. And God and Moses are in this conversation. What I love about God is that he is not so insecure as to have a conversation with us. He's not so insecure in the middle of we're out of here. We're not where we were, but we're not where we are going yet. And we say, God, we're not sure what to do. He's not so insecure to have that conversation. And sometimes we find ourselves in that place and we have to learn to ask the right questions because sometimes the conversation we have with God, he's not responding to. And it's not because he doesn't want to talk to us. It's because he's waiting for us to ask the right questions. And what we can learn from Moses here as a transformational leader is the questions that we should be asking at the place of growth that we're at so that we don't get stuck where we are and we can get where God's taking us. That's really what I want to talk to you about today. So let's read uh, verse 12 through 14, and there's just a couple things I want to point out to you. Moses said to the Lord, you've been telling me lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. And I'm reading from the New International Version. It's important because there's a couple words here that apply to the original language that are important. You have said, I know you by name. You have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember, this nation is your people. And the Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. That's, we're gonna stop right there, verse 14. First of all, here's what I wanna tell you. In your conversation with God, when you feel like you're not where you are, but you're not where you're not going yet, in your conversation with God, you first of all have to remind yourself of who God is. You have to remind yourself of what God said. What does he say? Moses said, you've been telling me lead these people, but you've not let me know who you will send with me. And you said, I know you by name and you found favor with me. What is he saying right there? He's saying, God, right now I'm in a place where it doesn't look like I have favor because I have a million people in the wilderness and I don't have food or drink to give them. But I want to tell you, you said I have favor, so I have favor. Favor is not found in the place where you have what you need. Favor is found in the place where it looks like you don't have what you need, but you believe he is what you need. He's reminding himself and he's reminding God, you said I have favor. The reason is because he didn't feel like he had favor. The second thing is you said you, have, you are pleased with me. Why is he saying that? Because the people he's leading are not pleased with him. And sometimes when God tells you to go somewhere, the people around you won't be pleased that you heard God and that you responded to God. But it doesn't matter if God's pleased with you, he's pleased with you. And Moses is basically saying, they're not very pleased with me, but I know you're pleased with me, so I'm gonna keep going. I'm not gonna quit because you're pleased with me. And he's reminding himself and he's reminding God of the conversation of who God is. This is who you are. You're pleased with me. I found favor in your sight. And you've told me to lead these people. I know I'm supposed to be doing this, so I'm not. That's part of that. We're getting out of that part of the conversation where, oh, I'm in the wrong place. It's the wrong time. Everybody hates me. God's not on my side. And all that stuff that creeps into your mind when you're in the in-between period, right? And so... He says to him, here's the question. If you're pleased with me, teach me your ways. Verse 13. 
the New International Version. It's, it uses some other language and other translations, but this is the proper translation. Teach me your ways. Everybody say ways. See, ways are different than plans. He didn't say, you can learn something from the Bible when you read what it says, but also what it doesn't say. He doesn't see, say, teach me your plan. Because if it's me in that moment, and I've got a million people following me, and I don't have the resources, I'd say, what's the plan to feed these people? What's the plan to get some water? What's the plan to get these people in line? What's the plan to get us? Because I'm, I'm a person, I'm just wired to want to know the plan. And I'm actually wired to develop a plan if there's not a plan. I have, there's a, there's a leadership test. I don't know if, you've ha- if it's popular in this culture. It's called Strength Finders, if you guys heard of that. And the, it, it teaches you your five top strengths and the way that you lead or the way that you help people lead. And, and my top five are futuristic, no surprise there, strategic, which means step-by-step, direct. Those are my top three. Let's just stop there. So basically, I can see where to go, I know how to get there, and I can tell you how to get there. When I look at your life, I can see where you need to go, I can tell you how to get there, and I can tell you really quick how to get there. And if you're not getting there, I'll tell you that you're wrong. (laughs) I'm really direct. That serves me well in what I'm called to do. It doesn't serve me well in my relationship with God sometimes. Because... God doesn't always tell you what the plan is. And I come by that honestly as well. It's not just my personality. It's, it's probably the way I was born in my family. I grew up in a family of, of five. I was the fourth. And we're, 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 the work, we're working poor, hardworking. And my dad was blue-collar, hardworking guy. We didn't take many vacations. I don't remember many of them. I do remember one because that's the only one I needed Sozo from. It was a 25-hour road trip from... Pennsylvania to Disney World in Florida, 25 hours with four, four, five kids in a powder blue station wagon with wood paneling on the side. If you remember those station wagons, fun. And because I was the fourth kid, I would get the seat of honor. It's called the hump seat. It's right in the middle where the drive shaft goes to the center of the car with your knees in your chest and your sister squeezing you on either side. But I didn't mind the seat because I'd be looking there through the front between my parents, because in those days, the fifth child, my brother, sat right between them, probably without a seatbelt or a car seat in those days. <laughs> he was the first one to go through if we had a problem, I guess. So. Good thing you're not the youngest, right? And so, but I was happy to sit there because I could see directly through the windshield. And 15 minutes into our 25-hour trip, I, I said, Dad, when are we going to get there? And my dad turned to the side and said, son, we will get there when we get there. Fifteen minutes later, that answer was still the same when I asked that question again. And the fifth time I asked that within the first hour on the road, the answer changed. Dad, when are we going to get there? Son, get in the back. <laughs> that was the answer. <laughs> it went from, we'll get there when we get there, to, son, stop asking the question. It's the same answer as it was the last time, so get in the back. Which, if you're a kid who likes to see the future, if you're a prophetic kid, the back seat was not the back seat. It was the back back seat. It means you're going forward, but you're looking backward, which is kind of torture for a kid like me. I feel like I'm going to my future, but all I can see is my past. <laughs> Which is the way a lot of Christians live. Okay, that's very <laughs> profound. Everybody say, I want to know the plan. 
See, we want to know the plan, but Moses didn't say, tell me what the plan is. He said, God, show me your ways. And see, this is important when we're on our way somewhere that eye has not seen or ear has not heard, has never into the, entered into the heart of man what God has in store for those who love him, is that we understand who God is. And it's not, you could know the plan, but if you know the plan and you don't know that God's good, that you found favor in his sight, that he's pleased with you, guess what? You're still going to get stuck. God, teach me your ways. Why? So that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. What is he saying? I'm not happy with the amount of favor that we've had. How do I continue to find favor with you? Know you more. Because the more I know you, the more I can access who, that part of who you are, and I have favor with you. Because the only way that you are going to lead people into places they've never been before is to get to know him in ways you've never got to know him before. Show me your ways. Really what God was saying, what Moses was saying is, when are we going to get there? Not just when we're going to get there. He said, you have been telling me lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. I like that question. Because it wasn't about when are we going to get there? What are we going to do when we get there? But who's coming with us? Sometimes we want the what of God. Sometimes we want the when of God. What are you going to do to get me out of this situation, God? What are you going to do to get us a new building, God? What are you going to do to fix our parking problem, God? What are you going to do to get people out of spiritual bondage? Or God, when are you going to do this miracle? When are you going to provide the finances we need? When are we going to have the breakthrough in our marriage? When are we going to... When? But maybe we're asking what and when, and we should be asking who. Who will you send with me? Maybe it's not about what are you going to do to change my financial situation, but God, show me who you are, Jehovah Jireh, my provider. Maybe it's not, when are you going to heal me? But show me who you are, Jehovah Rapha, my healer. You see the difference. It's a subtle difference, but it goes to the relational heart of God. And everything he does is relational. And if we just ask the question, what and when, we miss the who. And we might get there. We might think we're going to get there, but we're not where he wants us to be because he's not taking us somewhere. He's going with us somewhere. He's in the car with us. He's at the wheel. Baby, baby my dad was saying, son, I'm going to keep driving until we get to our destination. Just enjoy the ride. We'll get there when we get there. In fact, it's sort of similar to what God says. He says, God, teach me your ways to know, that, and to, to know that I have found favor with you and remember this people is your people. And the Lord replied, watch this, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Moses asked the most important question you can ask when you've experienced the measure of the favor of God but you haven't yet seen the fullness of it. It's not when, it's not what, it's who. Teach me your way so that I may know you. And the Lord answers his question. It doesn't seem like it. It seems like he's actually going back to his first question. What was his first question? 
who will, who will tell me who's going with me? Because the people weren't with him. I think what Moses' question really was, was I need to know if these people are with me. I need to know if my leaders are going to follow me. I need to know if I can make this happen. And it sounds like God is answering his first question, but I don't think he's answering his first question. He's answering his second question. Second question is, teach me your ways. And the Lord replied, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest, which answers both questions. What's the nature of God? What's his promise to you? Yes, he's got a plan. He's got a plan to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you a future and a hope. Yes, he's got a plan to reach your city, to bring cultural change to your nation. He's got a plan to bring light into darkness. Absolutely, he's he's not a, a God without a plan. But he's a God who's a present God. And if you have a plan without the presence, you really don't have anything. If you have an architectural structure, a building without the presence, you don't really have anything. If you have a church without the presence, you really don't have anything. You've got a crowd, you may have community, but you don't have a culture that's reproducible. And God says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And there's two things that I'll leave you with on that, and that's this. So wherever you are today, you may be still stuck in a little bit that place of Egypt or not quite through the Red Sea, or maybe you're just at the entrance to your promises, or maybe you've stepped in a portion of them, or maybe you're out here in this place where you know that you're not where you used to be, but you're not where you're going, and you don't have the resources to get where you need to go, and you're not sure the people around you are the people that are going to go with you, but my, his promise is my presence will go with you, which this is the, to the heart and the ways of God. He's with you. You know what Hebrews 12 Hebrews 11 and 12 says this, without faith, it's impossible to please God. What was Moses' question? If you're pleased with me, teach me your ways. There's there's not a lot in the new covenant that we have to do to please God, but it does say in the new covenant, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Now, you could take that and turn that into works, but it's not a work statement. It's a relational statement. Because then the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, and those who and those who believe that he is must believe, or those who come to him must believe that he is, and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, which defines faith. So without faith, it's impossible to please God. Those who come to him must believe that he is, and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. See, we most of the time, define a person of faith who is able to get us to the place of the reward. So someone lays hand on on the sick and they recover, we say, that person has great faith because they prayed and someone was healed. But the Bible doesn't define faith as that you pray and someone gets healed. The Bible defines faith as you believe God is. Which means that you believe he heals even when somebody doesn't get healed which means that you pray, and if someone doesn't get healed, you still pray again because you believe that God is, which means that when you're in the promised land, it's the manifestation of what you believed here because you believe that when you were here, God is. And because he is, when you get here, you see the reward of those who diligently seek him, not seek the reward. 
See, your faith, the reward is diligently seeking him, and the reward of that is your faith, and you, you discover that right here when you don't have the resources you need to get where you're going, when you don't have the people believing in you and you believe, still believe God believes in you, when you don't have the, what, the, the, the finances you need, but you believe you have the favor. See, you believe you have favor not because you have the finances, but you leave, believe you have favor because you don't have it. And it's the favor that brings the finances. If you didn't need the favor for finances, then you're doing something you could do on your own. But God's calling you to do something you can't do on your own, something that requires the favor of God. He's doing something that you can't do just with the, the approval, the pleasure of the people, that you have to believe God's pleased with you because you're going to do some things that doesn't look like people are pleased with, but God is pleased with you. And so what we have to realize is these two things. First of all, the Lord is with us. His presence will go with us. And the second thing is, he says, I'll give you rest. Everybody say rest. This word rest is kind of a dual meaning, but it doesn't just mean a ceasing from activity. It means a place of abode or habitation. It's literally, he's literally saying, Moses, my presence will go with you, but I'm not just going to take you into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land that has houses you didn't build and fields you didn't plant. My presence will go with you and I'll give you a place where I will live with you. A, an abode. God's plan wasn't just to get them out of slavery. It wasn't just to get them into a new land and to make a new nation. It was so he could live with them, that he could be with them, that in him they would live and move and have their being. What was their place of rest? It was him. It was him, because what if you get your house, but he's not comfortable there? He is your church. He is your new building. He is your promise. He is your community. He is your culture. He is, he wants to feel comfortable in your city. And so he's saying, my presence will go with you, and I will give you a place of abode or habitation that I can live with you. You could take that and apply it to anything. God wants your marriage to be a place of rest. He wants your family to be a place of rest. He wants your business to be a place of his abode or his habitation. He wants your artwork to be a place of rest. He wants your cool video up there. Which I think he's at rest with that as a cool video. His, that's a place of rest. See, God dwells in that. It's a place where God's like, I can demonstrate myself in that kind of creativity. It's not about something that we're doing. It's something that he's created in us so now we express it, and it's an expression of him. My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Here's what I love is that God takes a man. That's, that's me telling myself to stop preaching. <laughs> I can't see the light back there, the clock back there because it's so bright. Five minutes, that's all? Oh, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm bringing it in for a landing. Don't worry. Wherever you are today, he is with you. And he is creating the environment, not just to take you somewhere, but to go somewhere with you. And that's what I love about what God's doing in this church. Because out of this encounter and out of this place of conversation with God, and there's a lot of conversations to have. Who's with us? Where are we going? What are we going to look like? What's the house is going to look like this? And that's great conversation. 
But the most important thing to understand is that if his presence is here, you're going to get there. And when you get there, he's going to be there. And he's looking for a people that that's really all that matters. Not, God, what is your plan? But, God, teach us your ways. Because sometimes we find, us in, find ourselves in a place where we can't answer the concrete questions. But as long as we can have a conversation that leads us to more of who he is, we're going to get there.